0: Uh, wow, this truly was the masterclass, uh, such amazing insights. Uh, uh in fact, uh, uh if I, if I were to go back to the start of the title of the slide, uh, serenity, uh, written there and, uh, uh and, uh, to me, it reminded me of the Seinfeld episode, serenity now insanity later. Uh, so, uh, uh, to me, the biggest takeaway as, as you rightly uh, pointed out when in doubt Go back to first principles. Uh, don't don't doubt that, and uh, be calm, be objective, and things will just fall into place. So, uh, um, thank you, Professor. Uh, truly, truly uh, enriched uh, uh, all of us uh, by your thoughts uh, on the contemporary markets. Um, as 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 you know, Professor, uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's 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 an uh, it's an amazing honor. Uh, and uh, the very fact that uh, we we kind of uh, pre-announced it, uh, there was a deluge of questions. Uh, you know, uh, close to about two hundred and fifty odd questions that uh, that came up to me uh, in the span of twenty four hours. And uh, I know I'm going to disappoint almost uh, ninety or ninety five percent of them. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure I'll have more enemies than friends. Uh, but what I would uh, like to do now is uh, you know uh, go through the valuation framework that uh, that you laid out. Uh, bring into context uh, various aspects, uh, and then uh, you know we can uh, we can uh, try and uh, uh, g- glean some more insights uh, from yourself. Um, so uh, the first question, uh, uh, Professor, uh, you you spoke about uh, DCFS, uh, you know the, the fundamental uh, uh, pillar of your valuation. Uh, I I would like to know, uh, you know, from a reverse DCF, uh, and uh, you did give an insight of uh, equity risk premiums that you back calculate, and and then you give it. uh, uh, Just uh, just interesting uh, to to kind of understand, uh, and you also spoke about the narrative, uh, the fact of the three Ps. Uh, you know, uh, uh, possible, probable, uh, plausible and probable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just uh, curious, uh, you know, when you do a reverse DCF, uh, is that a sanity check even for a stock level uh, that that kind of throws out, you know, the complete reverse of it? Uh, yeah. Im- uh, impossible, implausible and and yes. improbable uh and uh, could you could you give some examples
1: out there thank you i, I there's two things one is i would suggest you a, a book that uh, actually is built around that premise called expectations investing it's a book by mike mobson who is yes. uh, one of my favorite people to read so basically the entire book is built around the premise of hey you can reverse from a dcf what the market is expecting with a caveat Think of the DCF as an equation with multiple variables in it, right? Your growth, your margins, your reinvestment. So you have dozens of inputs you have here. The problem is when you do a reverse DCF, you can pick only one of those inputs to be your uncertain input. In other words, you can solve for only one variable in this equation. So if you do a reverse DCF, you've got to pick the variable that you feel most uncertain about. That actually is the biggest part of doing a reverse DCF. Let me explain. Let me use Tesla as my kind of example. Now, I talked about my big assumptions about expected revenues in the future. How big will revenues be in year 10? What will the margins be like in year 10? What will the reinvestment look like for Tesla to become a large company? I can pick only one of those three as my reverse DCF question. I can't say I'm going to let all three be uncertain because you can't solve with one equation, three unknowns. I'll tell you the variable I would focus on. To me, the biggest unknown with Tesla is what it's expected margins will be because I think Tesla can pull off becoming a big company. I think Tesla can pull off being pretty efficient about delivering those revenues. You know what Tesla has not shown me yet that it can actually make substantial margins. So to me, the biggest unknown with Tesla is can it actually deliver those 12, 14? Because if it can deliver Microsoft-like margins, Microsoft has 22% margins, you can actually justify a $1,500 stock price. So if you're buying Tesla and you're buying it for the right reasons, maybe you have a story that explains to me why it can have 22% margin. So if you back out from the current stock price, what the break-even margin has to be, it has to be about 21%. So maybe there's a story that you can tell me that's a plausible story. But Tesla stops selling cars, but starts selling software. It's actually a plausible story. And it came to me while I was listening to somebody who owns a Tesla. He actually had bought a used Tesla. And I asked him how, you know, Tesla's come with autopilots, right? So basically, you can put it on an auto drive, and there have been some stories. So I asked him how he liked the auto drive option. And he said, I can't use it. And I said, why not? He said, to use it, you need a software download from Tesla. And because I bought it used from somebody and it was not authorized by Tesla, I cannot download the software, which actually raises a very interesting question. Without the software, a Tesla just becomes a hunk hunk of metal in your garage that cannot move. So, I'm not saying that this is going to be the model, but what if Tesla can produce an auto body that you just have to download software for every two months to keep going? And software is a huge margin business. So maybe that's the story you can tell to justify the Tesla valuation, but it is true. You can reverse engineer from a DCF whatever variable you're most focused on, but be careful about which variable you pick. Now, that's why I do the Monte Carlo simulations because there I can let everything become uncertain because the variables are connected to each other.
0: Right. Uh, That's a great insight, Prof, uh, to focus on the most uh, uh, uncertain variable. Uh, I think uh, uh, getting that right is uh, possibly 70 or 80% of the job done. Uh, Prof, uh, if I can just uh, switch gears and uh, one of your slides, uh, you you spoke about the longevity of companies, and uh, in some sense, uh, uh, you know, it's it's doing what Corona does—that uh, is, impacts elders more than the youth. Right. Uh, clearly, uh, the younger companies seem to be the ones that the market believes least uh, will prosper uh, out of this crisis far more than the older uh, companies. Now, uh, there are two observations that come here. Uh, uh, first, uh, from an IMK student, Neil Oswal. Um, you know, uh, for for decades, uh, businesses with stable cash flows have commanded premiums. Uh, but today's mantra is more like, you know, first let's capture the mind share, uh, you know, uh, or rather, uh, first start with the customers, capture them, then the mind share, then the market share, and then, uh, yeah, if at all, let's focus on the profit share. Um, and the second observation is uh, from Kavish Thakur. Uh, he he has this interesting observation that he makes that. Uh, Today, companies have access to vast pools of uh, private capital, uh, which wasn't uh, the case, you know, many many decades ago. Uh, you you did point out, of course, of a of an extreme uh, pool set of uh, three hundred years uh, horizon that uh, that uh, san had, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that SoftBank has. Uh, but in this kind of an environment where you have such huge pools of uh, private capital, uh, is it actually a disadvantage to be listed, or Put it on the way, is it actually a big advantage to continue to remain unlisted? Uh, you know, have access to all of these pools of capital. Don't really have to worry about quarterly numbers, et cetera. Uh, just want your perspective on this. Let, let's take that in two parts. I mean,
1: I when when let's start with the first part. And I'm going to challenge the, the the premise of that part, because the premise was that you said for decades, mature companies with stable cash flows have demanded a premium. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. true. In fact, if you look at that table I showed you of price earnings and price to book across the decades, the low PE and low price to book stocks earned higher returns. You know what that means, right? Upfront, they were actually priced lower than they should have been. So in fact, the opposite has been true for the the longest time in history, which is we paid too high a price for companies with unstable cash flows and low cash flows and too low a price. In fact, the last decade, Mm -hmm it's actually been the it's it's only in the last decade that's that true. you've actually seen the opposite to be true so i think maybe that's coming from an indian context which is in india perhaps companies with stable cash flows and predictable earnings have right. had higher pe ratios but Nitty, you also have a mess of corporate governance issues that go with companies, right? And if you have corporate governance issues, you know what? You want to invest in companies where you can see the cash flows up front because you don't trust growth companies, not because they can't grow, but because you don't think you get a fair share of the growth. The game has been cut. So I think that um, I think that's that's so the first premise that traditionally mature. But I'll kind of deal with the question of, has the world changed? I think it has in the following sense, which is, um, I do a, you know, I I did a session on the tech life cycle, the life cycle of tech companies. Remember the corporate life cycle graph I showed? And I described tech companies as aging in dog years. And what I mean by that is if you look at the great companies of the 20th century, the G's, the Fords, the Daimlers, the Siemens of the world, they lasted 100, 120, 130 years. You look at a company like Yahoo, a superstar company in the late 1990s, comes out of nowhere, starts in 1992, by 1999 becomes a $100 billion company, peaks by 2003, and then implodes and disappears by 2015. Start to end, the entire life cycle lasted only 23 years. The companies of the 21st century are going to look more like Yahoo, then they are going to look like GE. And that has consequences for so much of what we do in business. I'll give you a very personal example. In DCL, when you're asked to value a company, you follow the textbook. What do you do? You project cash flows for the next 10 years. And beyond the 10th year, you assume a growth rate forever. You compute a terminal value, right? And if you have a life cycle right. that lasts 70, 80, 90, 100 years, the way you justify it is you say 70, 80, 90 years is very much like forever. So using the perpetual growth model gives me a value pretty close to what I've got. And that worked for the GEs, right. the GMs, and the Fords. But let's say you're valuing Zoom. You project cash flows for the next 10 years. You give it this huge growth rate. Remember the companies of the 21st right. century can scale up really fast. Then you get to the right. end of the 10. Are so you going to put a 2% growth rate forever? I mean, what technology lasts forever? So in a sense with DCF, you can't assume a 2%, but that doesn't mean you abandon DCF. You know that in a discounted cash flow model in your terminal growth rate, when you get to the terminal value, you can use a negative growth rate forever. We almost never do, but there's nothing technically that stops you from using a minus 5% growth rate forever. Saying, what will that do to my company? It'll peak your company in year 10 and over time your company will disappear which might in fact be closer to the truth than using a two percent growth forever. So when I say go back to basics, I think we need to be more flexible with the basics. Often people, when they talk about go back to basics, they go back to the DCF model and they keep it rigid. The DCF model is an incredibly flexible model. We need to be willing to test that flexibility more. So I think that, um, that, that with these companies of the 21st century, we need to be more dynamic, more flexible in the way we use models. But I do think that the premiums that you will pay for the big money-making companies of today, which are primarily big tech, with the big tech companies, yeah, will not tech. last for as long as the premiums you paid for the Coca-Colas and the Kraft Heinz of the 20th century. As for the private risk capital, I think you have a point about that pool being deeper than it was before, because it's not just the SoftBank vision funds that are supplementing the pool. It's public equity is part of the private equity pool. You know that T. Rowe Price and Fidelity have invested in Uber as a, in Uber as a private That's right. Fund. That said though, you know how dependent private equity risk capital is on public equity markets staying healthy? Now I tell people, look, if you see the NASDAQ drop by 50%, I can guarantee you private equity capital will dry up in a second. These hundreds of billions of dollars you see out there are there because public equity is so healthy. It's, right. a, it's a market that lives off public equity because what's your exit strategy as a private equity? Strategy? It's not to build right. a company, it's to flip it to somebody else or to take it public. So much as it looks like these companies can survive without public equity, if public equities collapse, OYO is dead in the water. I don't care how much capital the vision fund claims to have, OYO will not make it if public equities collapse. So guess what? Private equity is a transient game. It survives because public equities are healthy. So that market that dries up the public equity market dries up, private equity will dry up in a second. I saw it happen in 2001 or VC money, sure. which was tens of billions of dollars in the 1990s, dried right up overnight, it was gone. So be, you know, if you're a private equity player, be, hope and pray the public
0: equity market stay healthy because without it, you're not going to make it. Fascinating point. Uh, in fact, uh, coming back to your presentation where you said that the risk capital came back quite yeah. fast uh, and it never, it never went away. away. In fact, uh, it didn't even, it
1: didn't even it go the first five
0: weeks. That's right. Um, uh, partially, it, it could be because, uh, you know, the central banks kind of uh, raise the bar way too early compared to what they did possibly in 2008. Um, So in that sense, you know, possibly the cycle is still in the works. Uh, We've seen some kind of, I'm saying from a market perspective, forget the business and the health cycle. Uh, So uh, do do you kind of think that, uh, therefore, that, uh, you know, as downgrades keep happening on the bond side, we are actually going to see some kind of risk capital uh, oh, kind f- of uh, you know kind I mean, of oh, story no.
1: is not complete yet I mean that's why I keep doing these updates saying each week I say, I'll be maybe next week, maybe next week okay. I mean, this story is still unfolding I mean there are more chapters to be written and some of those chapters are going to be pretty dire bad chapters and some are going to be good chapters there'll be downs there'll be ups and so i I think that there's a lot more left in this game. In fact, my, my, my current post that I'm writing on is on this topic of what is it that's allowed private risk capital to stay in the game? What's different this time around? Because it disappeared in 2008, disappeared in 2001. In fact, in every crisis in history, private risk capital has disappeared. One is of course, this central bank put, the Fed has put a put on a downward protection and maybe that's making risk capital take more, be more daring. The second is I think private risk capital is more diverse than it used to be. There was a point in time where private risk capital meant Silicon Valley venture capitalists. That's no longer true. It's a global game. There are multiple players in the game. It could be that, um, the, that, that, um, the game has uh, changed with new kinds of investors entering the public equity market. People like these Robin Hood app traders who wouldn't have had a chance 20 years ago. I think it's a multitude of factors. I don't think it's any single factor, but you know, it's it's for the moment, it's true private risk capital. But you're right. It could very quickly turn if there are far more. It's not just downgrades, it's defaults, right? It's downgrades are downgrades. Defaults are what scare yeah. people. So if you have defaults that spill over into banking crises, that spill over into more defaults, then you have a true crisis on your hands. And there's a very, there's still a very real possibility that that could happen. So I'm not saying markets have predicted the, the world is going to come back. So the world's going to come back. Remember the correlation is only 0.28, even four quarters ahead. There's a lot that markets don't know, but they're they're the same things none of us
0: knows. Uh Professor, uh, you know uh, we spoke about uh, debts and uh, mm-hmm. and you said about uh, you know downgrades are an important defaults are. Um, just want to move uh, shift gears into the debt uh, the debt portion mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Um, Uh, We we keep speaking about bubbles in fintech and tech world, et cetera. Uh, We kind of miss out that the biggest bubble possibly is the bond market, uh, where we've seen almost uh, 40 years of uh, secular decline in yields. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, the bond markets have kind of reflated back uh, from the crisis that they saw uh, in March. Uh, uh, back to all-time high levels and with more debt. So I just want to understand, uh, you know, what really is the end game uh, for all of this debt uh, that future generations may have to honor? Uh, how 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 does this kind of end? Uh, uh, some thoughts on that will be helpful. Yeah.
1: But, but first, I mean, it, I think there is a story that companies have become more levered over the last level. Remember what I said, everybody has an agenda. One of the agendas I've heard is companies mm-hmm. are bored like crazy. So one of the numbers I track is the net debt to EBITDA going back in time. That number hasn't changed since 2005. Changed, yeah. So basically what you have is people are borrowing more money, but they're borrowing because collectively companies have more cash flows. And the question to ask is how much will that EBITDA be damaged because of this crisis? Because let's face it, it's going to deliver damage this year and next year. And how much will debt need to come down? I'll be quite honest. There are sectors that are over 11. And, uh, you know, we know telecom is over And you know why they're over right. Telecom companies borrow money. And if you ask them, why do you borrow money? Their answer is because we need to invest in infrastructure. That doesn't answer my question. You can raise equity and invest in infrastructure. So why do you think they borrow money? You know why they borrow money? Because 100 years ago, AT&T borrowed money to build a phone. You know, we forget how much of corporate finance is driven by inertia and me-tooism. So if you ask telecom companies, why do you borrow money? It's because everybody else borrows money. Why does everybody borrow money? Because that's the way it's always been. And that, I think, has gotten sectors in trouble. I've never understood why airlines borrow money. You have a business that's already heavily weighed down by fixed costs. Why would you add on debt on top of it? And the answer is because that's what we've always done. But the world has shifted under you. AT&T was able to borrow money to build its infrastructure for a simple reason. It was building into a monopoly, which is it could borrow the money, pay the interest expense and pass it on to its customers. What telecom company in the world today is building into a monopoly? You know a technology company, you should be borrowing like a technology company. So I think this isn't a market-wide problem, but it's a sector-specific problem. I hope what comes out of this crisis is airlines and telecom companies take a look at what they're doing and saying, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be borrowing money. And hopefully this lesson will not be delivered, will, will, will not be delivered with a lot of pain because the pain will be with three big telecom companies go bankrupt. I don't want that to happen because then you have side costs. But I hope CFOs wake up to the fact that the way they've, funded their operations doesn't have to be the way they fund their operations in the future. So I think that uh, when we talk about debt, I think we've got to be specific about what sector we're talking about. Because let's face it, you, you look at the technology sector, which is where the bulk of the market cap rises. it's very likely level. Nice. You take Apple, Facebook, you know, Amazon. These are companies that don't borrow money. Yeah? And Netflix is a bit debt-like features because of the content commitments that they have which is a very different question about, you know, that kind of business model. So I think that it's been a long ride in bond markets upward. And that ride is not created by what's happened in the corporate bond markets by the fact that rates have come down. But you know what rates coming down reflect an underlying reality. We live in a world which I think is going to have lower growth and lower inflation than the world we saw 20, 30, 40 years ago. So when you do your DCF, be very careful about that growth rate in perpetuity because low interest rates are a gift that gives, but they're also a gift that takes away. They make your discount rates lower, but they also make you expect growth rates and expected cash flows lower.
0: Understood. Um, and of course, in India, we've seen, uh, you. you mentioned about telecom, and we've seen, uh, you know, possibly the greatest deleveraging story out in India, uh, where, what, in a matter of two, two and a half months, uh, uh, they've raised close to about $20 billion uh, uh, from all kinds of companies. Uh, but, uh, Professor, if I, if I can just uh, deliberate a bit more on the debt side, uh, you're right, uh, corporate debt hasn't really gone up, uh, but it's clearly been the sovereigns uh, that have raised all this uh, this amount of debt. And, uh, uh, and, of course, uh, the starting point of, uh, you know, uh, arriving at the cost of capital is, is really the sovereign rate uh, or the risk-free rate, so to speak. Uh, just, just try to understand, uh, you know, uh, at what point do you, do you get a sense that, you know, this is unsustainable? We can't be having, whatever, 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.5 as, uh, as uh, say, the AAA rate uh, in U.S., etc. Uh, or do you, do you think that, you know, inherently let the market be right? Uh, why should I second guess and and kind of uh, you know predate uh, that move? Uh, what camp are you in uh, and how do we resolve that? You don't have to have a camp. You can be in both and how. I mean, today, <laughs>
1: okay. the rate is what it is. I mean, you've got to take a common view of rates. This is not your rate, my rate. Not, we might believe the rate's too low, but the, the reality is if I don't buy Tesla and I decide to put my money in something risk-free, long-term in US dollars, guess what I'm going to make? I'm going to make 0.7%. It's not an estimate. It is a fact that for the next 10 years, if I want to lock up my money, I'm going to earn 0.7%. But at the end of year 10, I get to my terminal value calculation. I get a chance to revisit the question of what will my risk-free rate look like once I got my principal back at the end of year 10. So let's say I believe that a fair rate for the U.S. dollar is closer to 3%. Hmm. Think of it as a normalized rate. I can make my risk-free rate after year 10, 3%. What will that do? It'll raise my cost of capital after year 10. But it comes with a bonus. If the risk-free rate is 3%, I'm living in a very different Higher inflation, higher growth. The growth rate I will use in perpetuity can also be up to 3%. On the other hand, if I leave my risk-free rate at 0.7%, it's true my discount rate will stay low in perpetuity, but my growth rate in perpetuity is also going to be capped at 0.7%. So you look at the spreadsheet I've built in March of 2020. I let people change the risk-free rate, but when they change the risk-free rate, I also change the growth rate in perpetuity. And guess what happens? My final value doesn't change very much based mm-hmm. on my views on rates. And that's my point about rates is we're so obsessed about rates being low and trying to fix it. We forget about the company. We take our eye off the ball. If you're asked to value Tesla, you should be spending 95% of your time thinking about Tesla.
0: Not thinking about the Fed
1: and rates. And unfortunately, when you have macro obsessions, what happens is you forget about your company, you let your macro obsessions take over. So I think rates are low. I think they're too low, but at the same time, nice value company, they are what they are. I've got to take, I've got to live in the world I'm in, not the world I wished I was in. And I see a lot of analysts living in the world they wish they were in. The world we're in is Uh, low rates and low growth and low inflation.
0: And I'm going to build that in. That's quite a telling remark uh, on on the whole lot of us practitioners uh, who try to live in our own bubble, our own world. Uh, Fascinating, Professor. Uh, Again, uh, uh, sitting uh, on on the debt side uh, of Mm -hmm. of the valuation side. Um, We've seen, um, uh, again, corporate bond yields um, and say the dividend yield. Uh, I'm taking uh, AAA corporate bond yields and say the dividend yield of S&P 500, uh, almost at parity. Now, uh, as a purist, uh, it it seems uh, quite silly and absurd uh, because uh, in equity you have the option value of uh, of the of the future cash flows and and you know the option value of growth. Um, so uh, if if uh, uh, do you, do you at all get into this uh, entire thing of uh, you know which asset class is more mispriced at any point of time. Uh, how how do you kind of uh, resolve that uh, when it comes again? It's a macro question. I know uh, you said we shouldn't spend so much time there, but would uh, love to any, your thoughts.
1: Are you telling me that corporate deal, uh, the dividend yield is too low, or the risk-free rate is. Too, I mean, is this an argument that the dividend yield is too high, or the risk-free rate is too low?
0: I mean, that's. It looks like the corporate yield, the corporate yields are too low, uh, that uh, at least for AAA rate
1: or the corporate yields on the AAA versus the dividend yield. The dividend big? yield. But um, that's right. That's an interesting question, right? Because I think that there's nothing in theory that requires the two to kind of move to parity. You're saying, you know, because I get the upside with stocks. Why shouldn't I just put yeah. all the money in equities rather than corporate bonds? I mean, both are born, the underlying number that drives both is the T bond rate. Corporate deals are low because the mm-hmm. devout rate is 0.7%, right? Because you build a default spread on top of that. So you're earning about right now, if you're, let's say, a triple B rated bond, you're earning about a 2% default spread. Triple mm-hmm. B rated bonds have about a 1% default rate. So you're pretty much going to earn roughly 2% on your portfolio. Guaranteed. Okay. Pretty, or almost guaranteed. Okay. You invest in a dividend yield of the same amount. We live in a world where all those dividends are 2019 dividends. Your dividend yields right now are dated, right? Because they don't reflect right. the pain that's coming to dividends this year. Because the dividends are a lag defect. So to begin with, those dividend yields are higher than they truly are because they don't factor in the cuts in dividends that are coming. And second, remember we talked about life cycles? Mm-hmm. The di- deals you see could be here today gone tomorrow that's the other thing we need to relearn from history historically we assume dividends are like coupons we can keep collecting those dividends and guess what those days are starting to get dated there's a in the u.s it's already happened the u.s increasingly companies have shifted from dividends to flexible dividends which is what i call buybacks okay yeah Yeah, and cut them all out So I think increasingly around the world, the other thing that this crisis is going to bring is increasingly companies are going to say, why would I want to lock myself into a policy where I have to pay the same amount in dividends in good years and bad years? It makes absolutely no sense. I I need more flexible dividend policies. So don't be surprised if that's the other thing that comes out of the crisis. Dividends become more volatile and more variable over time, which is the way they should be on equities, to be quite honest.
0: Absolutely. Understood that, bro. Uh, the next question comes from uh, Vikasha. Shah. Uh, so, uh, while a lot of frameworks, uh, you know, on valuations, investment world, uh, speak about buying a particular uh, security, even sizing, uh, potentially very little thought or uh, little uh, literature is available on selling. Um, and uh, you know uh, and uh, you you did speak about uh, Tesla uh, selling out at uh, whatever price you did uh, again no regrets out there. Uh, but partially it's also the odds that you know the odds of finding a winning company that can keep reinvesting uh, back into business and keep compounding are so low. Uh, how should we look at it of course there is a you know a distribution curve as you rightly pointed out which says you know at a particular value, uh, maybe it's gone into absurd valuation theory. Uh, and yet that is the scarcity premium angle that, uh, you know, maybe there is only one Tesla or there is only uh, one Amazon. Uh, who else can take their place? So how do we kind of marry both of these? Uh, any any thoughts on the selling framework uh, from you would be very helpful. So go
1: the science. Think of it as a math equation. Why do you buy? Because the minus you put out, what you pay is less than the plus the value you get. Why do you sell? Because the plus you get is higher than the minus. So I bought Tesla because at $180, it was around at the 40th percentile of my value. It looked like there was a 60% chance it was undervalued. I'm sorry, the 60th percentile value. So basically there's a 60% chance it was undervalued. 40% was overvalued. It was undervalued by about 7-8%. Why did I sell Tesla? Because the price, in fact, that's what makes it tricky. It's not that it's difficult to find a great company. It's difficult to find a great company and not have the market catch up with the fact that it's great. Apple earns well above its cost of capital. But guess what? Everybody knows that it earns more than its cost of capital. That's the tricky part, right? It's not just finding a great company, but finding an undiscovered great company that remains undiscovered. For a long time a long and time. that's the right. problem that you run into an in active investing is it's a flatter investment world. There used to be a time when you could find a secret company and nobody knew about it for years when you were investing. Today you're, the very act of you trading gives away the secret. So it becomes much more difficult to keep the secret to yourself. So that's why active investing is so difficult to win at. It's an, art of, it's an act of faith. Faith in your value, and faith will adjust your value. And I would say, don't you know? I, I people, I think the promise people buy a stock and they forget about it because that's what old-time value investing said, told you to do, right? Buy a great company, put in your portfolio. To me, every sure, I have so. in my portfolio needs to be revisited every year because it has to earn its right to stay in my portfolio every single year. So, half of what I do every year is actually maintenance valuation, which is I go back and revalue every company in my portfolio and say, does it still belong? Because if my rule in investing is I should buy something when it gets undervalued, then to be consistent, I should sell the same thing when it's overvalued. The problem is you, you fall in love with your winners. And then you find ways to justify holding it. Don't, it. don't even try to revalue companies that have gone up because they're afraid of what they'll find. I mean, I'll be honest. I did True. not want to value Tesla in January 2020 because it had done so well for me. I said, maybe I should just leave it in there. But I have to fight that urge and revalue every company, including the companies I love. And the companies I hate the, because the other thing people do is they stop looking at the losers. They cover up. the. I don't re- remember buying that stock. It's still in your portfolio and it's down 50%. You know, because we know that we hold on to losers too long and winners too long. So sometimes just forcing yourself to be honest with yourself on those investments can lead you
0: to the right judgments. Well put. Uh, Prof, uh, this question comes from uh, two people, Ishan and Kuldeep. Uh, In one of your recent interactions, you said that, uh, you know, if if you choose a moral stance so for example no alcohol no tobacco etc uh you typically run a suboptimal portfolio and you should live with it uh in that context uh, you know i just want to get uh, a sense of esg uh, uh, is, is 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 it a buzzword a fad uh, it, it seems uh, uh, you know uh, sustainability sustenance etc is something that we would love to have how do we kind of uh, marry it because that seems to have still done well even during this period, um, do we do we have a higher discount rate? Uh, how do we kind of uh, you know kind of plug in uh, ESG in that kind of framework?
1: Thank you. I just finished a paper that I co-authored with uh, my good friend Brad Cornell. In fact, our collective uh, uh, editorial showed up on ESG, showed up in the Financial Times today. So we get a chance read it.
0: Okay. And the
1: title of the paper kind of gives away where I come from, which is: Do you want to sound good or do you want to do good? Uh, ESG, in my view, is the most overhyped, overpromised concept that I've seen in business history. Because as a company, what are you told with ESG? If you adopt ESG, you're going to become more profitable, more valuable as a company. That's what you're told as a company. As an investor, I've heard people go around and say, if you invest in good companies, you will earn higher returns and you'd have investing elsewhere. So investors are being told that they will earn higher returns. Companies are being told, and there's nothing wrong. Be- and the reason is there's an entire ecosystem making money of ESG consultants. I mean, right. every major consulting firm is in ESG on. You know, you had ESG specialists, ESG experts, half of annual reports now, I think are written by ESG experts. Uh, no, sounds right. sound good. But so I went back to basics. I said, I believe in value. So can ESG affect value? Absolutely. Can being good make you a more valuable company? Yes, but for it to happen, one or two things has to be true. By being good as a company, you have higher revenues and higher growth. And I margins. consumers buy your products more because you're a good company. Patagonia, classic example. But it's a niche company. It serves a bit, it caters to a very narrow market and it's a, it markets itself as a good company. So I'll give you higher revenues, higher growth. The other way ESG can play out is by for you having a lower discount rate as a good company or put differently that bad companies end up with higher discount rates. The story there is if investors will not buy fossil fuel stocks or uh, weapons companies, then the demand will shrink and the returns will go up and your discount rates will have to get higher. The problem with that story is it's at odds with the story you're telling investors, because if that story is true, Investors will actually make higher returns more money. oil companies. And f- so my point is, don't go around promising everybody the moon because it's a recipe for cynicism. And that's what I see playing out is companies are being extraordinarily cynical on this concept. They sound good. They say all the right things. They've got an ESG specialist around who comes out. It's like a public relations specialist. You know, know, 40 years ago, when I started teaching in business school, there were no ethics classes. Now, of course, every business school has ethics classes and ethics cases, which is good, right? We want people to be ethical, but guess what? If by the age of 30, you don't know the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, there's no ethics class that's going to teach you this. And ask people a very simple question. Clearly, we're teaching a lot more ethics in business school than we did 30 years ago. Here's my follow-up question. Are companies now more, they're after all run by these people, are they more ethical now than 30 years? But the answer is absolutely not. We've converted ethics into another buzzword. And I have a bad feeling about ESG becoming another buzzword because in the hands of the people who are marketing it, it is becoming the supreme buzzword, right? Because you have ESG measures and just like corporate governance, the checkbox measures, you do this, you do this, you do this, you're a good company. You know what the most widely held stock by ESG investors was last year? Oh, Microsoft. Microsoft. Okay. And I remember 20 years ago Microsoft was a Darth Vader of corporations. Okay. How the heck did Microsoft become the best company in the world? You know why? Because momentum and making a lot of money, the, the, if you ask me for a predictive variable on ESG, It is actually momentum. So magically, companies that have done well over the last 10 years become, is it because good companies have momentum or is it because companies a lot of momentum that are doing well can afford to be charitable, can afford to to start. So I'm a cynic when it comes to ESG. When all is said and done, more will be said than done
0: on ESG. So clearly selection bias you think, is uh it definitely plays through. And so the there's some storytelling. Actually, it's almost no correlation
1: between being good and being and corporate profit In fact, if there's evidence on investors, investors who invest in good companies earn slightly lower returns, and that should be they should be okay with that. Because remember, this is a constrained optimization problem, right? Then mathematically, how can how can a constrained optimum be better than an unconstrained optimist. Unconstrained. So
0: don't tell me I can have my cake and eat it too, I cannot. Understood, Prof. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, we're moving into certain personal questions uh, that uh, students have asked, uh, especially you know as they are uh, going through their course, uh, courses. So this one is from IMK student Ashish Chinoy. Uh, did something in valuation also teach you something about the way of living life and valuing intangible things? Is that a philosophical bent to valuation to draw life lessons from a very profound question from a student?
1: Actually reverse the question. Do life lessons make you better at valuation? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Much of what I've learned about corporate finance and valuation, I've learned by looking around. Right. I mean, I learned about arbitrage by watching my four year old son um, barter with my one-year-old where my one-year-old used to love coins and my four-year-old offered him coins in return for paper money. Hey, you pay a quarter, you get it, there's arbitrage right in front of you. Why does it happen? Because one is, one side of the transaction is less informed than the other, which is the one-year-old. And I think that I learned about arbitrage and why, you know, day trading will never work because you're going to be trading against people who are more informed than you 90% of the time. You're like my one-year-old. And over time, you're going to collect a lot of quarters in, in return for that. So if you listen to my corporate finance and valuation classes, I talked about arbit- I talked about you know star- dividends and buybacks again. And you know, I said, dividends are like getting married. Buybacks are like hooking up. You know, it's a it's so uh, your life lessons travel into my your investment. So, you, you know. My advice to people is live your life. Watch what people are doing around you. Don't be so caught up in your work that you're caught up in spreadsheets and financial data. Life's lessons play out in investing in valuation because companies are are collections of people. They cater to other people. And I think, you know, you need to bring that humanity into everything you do.
0: Very profound. Um, The second question comes from Ramkrasad. Uh, And uh, uh, clearly, you're one of the very rare opinion makers, you know, who who likes to boldly uh, put price targets, who who isn't offended or being diplomatic, uh, which most of the investment world typically are, uh, you know, uh, putting this or that on the one hand, on the other hand, you lay out all the assumptions. Uh, The question really is, uh, you know, as you set out your investment journey or your Mm -hmm. uh, teaching career, when did you get this confidence that, uh, you know, you could actually... Uh, lay it all out, um, you know, uh, did it start right from the start or was it something that you developed along the way? And the second part of the question is, uh, uh, assume you're not uh, the dean of valuation or the guru of valuation uh, and uh, and you're just starting out now. And uh, given what's there in Twitter and the trolls that are there, uh, would you want to do the, the same way of putting it all out in Twitter or do you think that uh, maybe now, uh, you know, it's it's become too hostile? and uh, wouldn't want to get there?
1: There are two parts. The first was I think that um, I, I developed the freedom to say whatever was on my mind because when I realized I had nothing to lose. And that nothing to lose came from a choice I made early in my life. And this was like one year into my academic life that I was never going to be a consultant. I've never consulted in my life. I've never done an appraisal for money in my life. And um, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it. So I'm not saying this as if I'm Mother Mother Teresa. I I was lucky enough that the profession I chose, which is teaching, I'm a teacher first and foremost, paid me enough that I did not have to do any of those things. And that's given me the freedom to say whatever's on my mind, because if I had at some point in time decided to be a consultant or an expert witness, already my exits would have been blocked off because then I'd have to worry about if I say this, what will Goldman Sachs think about it? If I say this, what will so-and-so think about it? If I say this will be, right. if I have absolutely nothing to do, so if I think Goldman screwed up on an IPO valuation, I have absolutely no qualms about saying Goldman screwed up on an IPO valuation. This is the worst valuation I've ever seen. So. Part of it is realizing that if you have the freedom to walk away, you have the freedom to express your opinions. And I tell people, because a lot of my students go to invest in banks and consulting firms, I said, be very careful about those golden handcuffs that are going to be put on. you. You're going to be paid a lot. But as you get paid more and more and you develop a lifestyle built on what you're going to get paid you're losing your freedoms because you're going to think twice about, so you might be in the middle of a deal and you realize the deal is not a very good deal. You get ready to open your mouth and say, this is not a very good deal. When you realize that this might not be the best choice, given the fact that you're part of a deal making team that needs this deal to go through. So I realize that people, you know, that most people operate under constraints that keep, so I, I feel no glory about being able to say what I want, because I don't think, most people have that freedom. I was lucky enough to be able to have made the choice where I have that freedom. And that freedom allows me to say, this is what I think. You might agree with me, you might disagree with me. And it's also given me, I think a strength that I would not have if I had an agenda. If people thought, if people learned that I work for Goldman Sachs or I work for KKR, then everything I say, they will look at through those lenses. He works for Goldman Sachs, what's his other agenda? Hopefully, when people hear me, they can say, look, I don't agree with them, but I also know he does not have an agenda. He doesn't work for Tesla short sellers. He doesn't consult for Tesla. So when I say good things about Tesla, or bad things about Tesla, it is what I feel. It's what I believe. And and I, you know, I, I know that social media is not a space where there's a lot of holding back. And I realized that, and I, you know, as I've posted on Tesla is a classic example, a company where people have very strong views, I make a point, look, we can disagree without being disagreeable. You can disagree with me and that's perfectly okay. In fact, I think I would welcome that, but to disagree with me, tell me, so that's why I often frame my valuations of not, this is the valuation of Tesla. I I very clearly emphasize this is my valuation of Tesla. by the way, I want you to disagree with me and I'll give you the framework to disagree with me. In fact, I welcome your disagreement and how it plays out because my story and my valuation of Tesla drive my decisions and your story and your valuation of Tesla drive your decisions. not my job to tell other people what to do. And I think that from that perspective, I've been blessed in terms of not having the kind of you know, poisonous atmosphere in social media where I feel the urge to leave. But I recognize that social media is this, so I'm careful about what I what I talk about. I stay within my in my lane. I'm not. People don't come to read my posts to think about what I think about politics, what I think about the Indian government, what I think about. You know, that's not my job. I'm going to stay in the lane that I came in, and I'm going to continue to talk about what I, what I. Feel I can have something to contribute about. And I, you know what? The day I realize I have nothing new to say, I would stop writing. What's the point? Why keep saying? It? I'm not a, new, a newsmaker. I basically take the news and give you what I think I see in that news. And if I have nothing new to say, why say it?
0: Wow. Um, absolutely. Wow. Uh, the last question as we, as we kind of wrap up, uh, you know, on constraints of time. Um, this being, uh, you know, uh, from an uh, IIM, uh, just, just uh, want to get your sense. If you could uh, tell your student version of yourself in 78, 79, as you graduated out of IIM Bangalore, what would be the one personal or professional advice be uh, in the bit, with the benefit of hindsight? To thine own
1: self be true. I know it's, it's easily said, but very difficult. You, I mean, there will be choices you have to make in your life. And some of those choices you might not have a, you know, you might have to make for financial reasons, for family reasons. But there's only one person you got to answer to at the end of your lifetime, which is yourself. And I, and I think that, you know, that's why I think you don't need ethics classes. You need, you don't need, I mean, in a sense, you've got to be true to yourself. And um no, it's, uh, and that's it's the advice I give my kids as well is be true to yourself. You know, I don't want you to, to be something because somebody else wants you to, to do it or what your peer group believes. It's easier said than done, because I'd be quite honest, there'd be times where I've felt the urge to do something because other people want me to do it. But I think
0: that to thine own self be true. Uh, wow, Professor, uh, truly great 90 minutes. Uh, I know I'm not going to sleep tonight uh, sitting in India. Uh, going to ponder about each and every insight that you've shared with us over the course of the last 90 minutes. Uh, absolute delight uh, from the entire fraternity of IM Am Code, Code uh, the students, the faculty, the alumni. Uh, great, great, great thanks uh, for making it today uh, in your very busy schedule. Thank you so much, Professor. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: you <laughs> Hey guys, listen to the I am Kori Code Anthem,
0: "Badalo Mein Class" on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, Hangama, and many more streaming platforms.